0: Welcome to the Tax Girl podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Erb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. As we come out of the pandemic, Many taxpayers find that they were not in the same financial situation as they were before. Some lost jobs or businesses, while others took on extra debt. Many of the expenses, from health care to mortgage payments, remained on the table, even if they were delayed or deferred. Now that we seem to be turning a corner, I wanted to talk about paying down debt, saving money, and generally planning those next steps. So I called in the expert. Jaquette Timmons focuses on the human side of money. She works as a financial behaviorist and is committed to getting you to see that you don't manage money, you manage your choices around money. In addition to being an author and frequent blogger, Jaquette is also the creator of The Comfort Circle, a dinner series where she hosts discussions about money, business, and life over food and wine, which sidebar sounds amazing, and Pricing Made Human, She is also the host of the podcast, More Than Money. Shaquette holds an MBA in finance from Fordham University's Graduate School of Business and an undergrad in marketing from the Fashion Institute of Technology, a combination she credits in part for being able to blend her analytical mind and creative spirit in service to helping her clients shift at how they look at money, how they perceive its role in their life, and how they give it direction. She lives in Brooklyn and can be seen running in Prospect Park most days of the week. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you so much, Kelly. I'm really excited.
0: I am too, because I think a lot of people have questions right now about money, right? So we've been in this holding pattern for you know, almost two years, right? So at least I would say about a year and a half where things slowed down or stopped for a lot of people. And now things are picking up and new stuff's happening. So people are traveling again, they're eating out again, and they're also getting bills again. (laughs) So (laughs) I want to talk, I want to spend a few minutes talking about debt in a little bit. But one of the things that also is happening, and it's going to be in a lot of taxpayers' minds right now, is the child tax credit. So as part of the pandemic relief, Congress did push through this expansion of the child tax credit. And not only is it worth more than it used to be, but you can get them in advance payments now, which is something new for IRS. And those are going to start being paid out, they hope, (laughs) in July of 2021. And I think this is going to be, you know, they're saying this is going to help lift a lot of families out of poverty. One of the things that I think that there's some concern about is you know, how are people going to manage this? And I don't want to turn the discussion into like a judgy, how do you manage money? But what do people need to think about when they're getting an extra check that they might not have gotten before? And then kind of the flip side of that is that depending on financial circumstances and how they file their taxes, their refund might be smaller next year because they've already gotten some of it in advance. So that means they're going to have to plan a little differently. Can you maybe talk about what folks should be thinking about when they're looking at getting money that, again, that they might not have gotten before, and then how that might affect their long-term planning?
1: Sure. And, you know, let me just start off by saying no one ever has to worry about me applying any sort of judgment. I operate in a judgment-free zone when it comes to talking about money so people can be, you know, comfortable in that regard. But to your um, specific question, there are a couple of things that co- jump out for me. One is with getting the child tax credit and you know, getting it sooner than perhaps people initially expected it to be, and maybe even with greater amounts, it reminds me of when people get bonuses or when people get lotteries, if they win a lottery. For those folks that find themselves in that position, however that quote unquote windfall comes. I think there are two things to keep in mind. One, you have to have a use of proceeds. And so right now is a really good time to truly just write down when that money comes in, how do you plan on allocating it? And one of the reasons for doing that is that's your way of, A, giving your money direction. That's B, a way of making sure that you don't overcommit to something. Mm-hmm. Because you have all of this quote unquote new money coming in. And I also think it's a really great way of just, you know, managing your expectations of what you want that windfall to do for you. So to me, having that use of proceeds, if you will, and and you know, saying this is how I'm going to utilize this money is is a person's way of being the boss of it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, sure. And in terms of the second part of your question which was, okay, how, is, how might this impact their tax return next year and their cash flow next year? I think it's a matter of aiming, being a little bit more conservative and, and, and assuming that it's going to be less mm-hmm. so that you can then be prepared for if it is, you, you are already prepared. And if it's more then you've just got a nice surprise. Right. And
0: I, well, I think one of this is one of the things that is hard to talk about in a lot of families, in particular, because when I mentioned judgment earlier, you know, I, I said that kind of tongue- in cheek, but there's a lot of that out there. And there's a lot of it in my profession, and I've talked about this on Twitter with some of my other colleagues that, you know, we do draw a lot of conclusions based on how people talk about their money. And so, for example, when people get large refunds, there's a lot of folks in the tax profession that will say, That's foolish, right? Like you should have planned better to not get a big refund. And I honestly used to be one of those people. I used to think, well, you need to plan better. You need to not get a big check at the end of the year because you're giving the government the use of your money for the whole year and you're not getting any interest, right? So, and I used to think that way. And then I started working with clients and some of them, They don't have good savings plans. They, when you mentioned, you know, overcommitting, they know that there are people that overcommit. And so getting the check at one time was actually the way that they were able to manage. They would, um, one of my clients actually described it to me as a forced savings account because they knew that they would not be putting the money away every month, even though they should, if they had gotten it back in their check. But then when they get it at the end, then they can pay off debt. I actually had a friend of mine who would put, uh, she would prepay her rent. The refund check came in and she did that every year because it just made her feel better knowing it was taken care of. And she wasn't sure that she would have planned it differently. And so when I talk about judgment, like that is one of the things that I think there is um, a little bit of a stigma, right? About how people spend their money, how they plan around it. And I think that that's what keeps people from talking about it sometimes.
1: I would agree. And I think part of the challenge is that folks are using that approach as a way of protecting themselves from themselves. But what that approach does is in a really odd way, it actually prevents them from developing a strategy that will serve them, not just now, but also in the future, because mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't invite them to exercise the muscle and to strengthen the muscle. That will you know that you have to when you get get the money now and you have to make choices around it, if you can defer having to make those choices until a later point in time, that's a different muscle that you are utilizing that may not help you in the long run it might help you now and it might satisfy you now and it might be a solution clearly if someone's doing it that's working for them, but it's like a seesaw, and you always have to kind of manage look at one end of the seesaw as Mm short-term choices, decisions, and impact, and then the other long-term decisions, choices, and impact. And you're navigating all the time. How do you have a, a better balance between the two of them? So I think the challenge here, the opportunity that comes from the stigma around, why in the world would you do this? Really, I think is Experiment. What would it look like if you experimented, even if it were, were just one year, started to experiment with doing or taking a different approach mm-hmm. and measuring you know, how that ends up impacting your bottom line, both financially and emotionally. But I think you have to first be willing to experiment.
0: Right. And I think though that one of the things that scares people, and I say this as somebody who did not grow up a household where we talked about money. um, And if we did talk about money, it was in a scary way because we were not, there were times when we were not financially secure. And when I was a student, because I I paid my own way and took out loans, you know, I I had a lot of debt and not a lot of income, right? So I understand where, where this mindset comes from. And one of the things that's interesting is when you mention like short-term versus long-term, when you're really feeling overwhelmed, It's so hard to understand that there might be a long-term, right? Like when you're just trying to get to tomorrow, you can't imagine what you're going to do in 30 days, much less six months. So how do you get into that mindset where you're like, you know what, I'm not going to just focus on what I need to do today. I'm going to start looking like, how do
1: you get that seesaw to be in balance? Like, how does that work? I think oftentimes the reason for the overwhelm is that we're focusing on making these big leaps. So if you, you know, envision jumping over a puddle of water, you know, sometimes you're like, okay, I've got to jump over this and I've got to clear it as opposed to maybe trying to jump over it and then ending up jumping right into it. And the reason that I use that as an example is maybe there wouldn't be as much overwhelm if you're not trying to go from 0 to 100 mm-hmm. and instead you try to go from 0 to 10 and okay. then next time around you try to go from 0 to 15 and then next time you you know incrementally increase it i think as a culture we do a really bad job at rewarding people for small incremental steps yes we discount the value of that and yet i think that those small incremental steps can have a profound impact on not only the result, but how you experience getting from point A to point B. And so we need to just value a little bit more making those small choices, taking those small steps in terms of actions and you know, appreciating that the, the end result will get there in a progression and it won't happen overnight.
0: I completely agree. I wrote an article a few years ago about setting a savings plan for college. And one of the things that I mentioned in that article was that we did not have an Emily Gilmore giving us $10,000 of seed money to start this, right? So we were putting in a little bit of money every month. And by a little bit, I really do mean a little. I had three kids and paying down student debt and starting a business. And so we didn't have lots of extra, but we put a little bit in. And I've got a lot of reader email that said, thank you for this, because they had always been told if you can't start, you know, there are a lot of, and brokerage accounts used to be pretty awful about this. Now they're much, much better, but there used to be these ridiculous minimums, right? Like don't even bother coming to us unless you're going to put 25,000 in. And for somebody who really just wants to start with a hundred dollars, like, it's overwhelming. So I yes. completely agree with you that this idea of, like we don't celebrate the I mean, the person who's putting in $100 a month is getting there, right? Like,
1: that's, that's
0: what we should be looking at instead of this notion that you have to have the big check to put in.
1: Absolutely. And, and I share this example, you know, for illustrative purposes, is not to imply that people only have this amount. But you know, if you just did, a day. That's $1,000 at the end of the year.
0: Wow. Yeah. You don't think that way because people spend that, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously you you could spend that on a iTunes or something easily.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when I use that example, listeners, please don't, Internalize that as this being a, a conversation around the latte factor, you know. Oh yeah, no, Don't I, I, buy
0: I that's that of mine. yeah, no, I, I am agree, not I agree. talking <laughs> about that at all. I hate that idea. That's <laughs> oh, why I God, actually I, specifically said iTunes instead of coffee. Yeah, exactly. I hate
1: that analogy
0: that everybody's like, oh, if you just forego your cup of coffee, you'll be a millionaire.
1: You no, know, I completely. I just, yeah, I, I think it's so restrictive, and I'm not quite sure if that was the intent. I think it was David Bach who came up with that. I'm not sure if that was his intent or not but I just think it's really restrictive. Mm -hmm. I share that example again, to just simply emphasize the power of small. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I do think that that is where,
0: and you know, the same, I think the same thing applies to debt, right? So one of the things I do think, and and I I think it's worrisome for some economists right now is that a lot of folks, um, even though, again, the employment numbers are better, travel numbers are better, eating out numbers, like, we're spending more, which is good on the one hand, but a lot of expenses have been deferred. So I do think that there are some folks who are gonna have big mortgage payments coming up, balloon rent payments coming up, big credit card bills coming up. And I know it's true on the tax side because I've talked to clients about it. You know, how do people tackle debt? Are, should it be the same way? Is it a little out of time or how do you prioritize debt?
1: I definitely think it's a little out of time. I am in the, the snowball effect camp where you focus on eradicating the debt that has the lowest balance and, and, you know, work through it as Mm -hmm. opposed to targeting the one that has the highest interest rate. So that's one thing. Is that a psychological thing? It is a psychological thing because, yeah, of course, mathematically, one would want to do the reverse of what I just described, but psychologically, it helps to see that something is actually getting paid off. So you get there faster. I get that completely. That's how I do my to-do lists.
0: I put the little things down too, so that when I do something like call Pico, I can mark it off the list and then feel like I've done something. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Exactly. And then the other emotional factor here is even as you prioritize paying off your debt, make sure that you are allocating a little something, even if it is quote unquote a little, a little something to savings so that you can see something growing at the same time that you are paying off the debt. Because I think part of the challenge is when all of your resources are going to pay off debt, you just energetically feel drained and you get frustrated and you get easily discouraged, which I think is countered when you're doing both. And I think it also speaks to just another cultural way of, of thinking that I don't agree with, which is that it has to be a competition and it has to be either or, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, well, how can it be both and? And I think that that just opens up more questions and conversations around possibilities. If you look at it through the lens of how can I do both? I agree. Again, this
0: is something that I've had it in my own life because again, didn't have a lot of direction in terms of how to do things. So I had to kind of feel my way around. And when I was paying off my student debt, and I remember my first boss, like my first real boss, so I'm not counting my, my other jobs, but like my first real boss with benefits, right? Uh-huh. And we were talking about uh, retirement plans. And I was terrified at the idea of directing even a little bit of my salary into any kind of savings or retirement or anything, because I knew I had this debt and it like, it just crushed me. Mm-hmm. the way you put it about how you could see something growing, I think that would have made a huge difference. Psychologically, just looking and seeing, you know what, there is something there. There's the rainbow and, there, and then there's the puddle,
1: right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah,
0: totally. One of the things that has come up a couple of times before is this idea of prioritizing debt. And I know that you said, you know, pay down the smaller ones. Do you think about, obviously, this is going to be very facts and circumstances, depending on the person. But I think a lot of times people, they answer the, the call of the person who's screaming at them the loudest, right? So that tends to be a lot of credit card companies that call every day. How do you counsel people to learn to look at a list of debts and kind of prioritize them according to what's manageable or what I can pay rather than just having to drown out that noise? Because I do think that, I see this with tax a lot. People come to me after the fact and because the IRS maybe hasn't sent them a bill yet, so they, they file a return, they don't pay and then they, they're paying off other things and then a year later, they get a letter from the IRS and so maybe they write a check, a quick check, but they don't do everything and then they just wait until the lien notice comes or the levy notice comes because they're not being, the IRS isn't yelling at, but Capital One might be. Like, how do you kind of, talk to people about, first of all, sorting out what needs to be paid and then figuring out the priorities. Because I do think when you talk about being overwhelmed, that's another thing that happens, right? Like if you owe five different creditors, where do you start? And, and, you know, outside of that, I understand that, you know, you said pay out the smallest one, but assuming that everything is else is equal, like if, if you had five
1: equal debts, like how do
0: you figure out what to do next?
1: So there are a couple of things I would say. The first is to list out all of your debts by category. So what debts do you have that are credit card? Do you have an, any tax debt or do you anticipate any tax debt? What are student loans? And then what might be mortgage or car related? And then once you have that list, literally, literally draw a rectangle. because <laughs> You're going to create a grid. Mm-hmm. You're going to draw a rectangle. And you're going to divide it so that you have four quadrants within it. So a vertical line and a horizontal line. Label one column high, label another column low. So let's just say you label the left-hand column high, the right-hand column low. Label the upper row what, and then the lower row need. I call this a debt matrix. Okay. And the debt that is where the intersection of something that you want and that's high, that's a maybe if you have your other priorities met. Okay. When it's the intersection of something that you want and it's low, that's danger zone. Okay. And then when it is, you know, the intersection of something that you need and the value is high, that's does it help you achieve a goal? Mm -hmm. Right. So that could be like your mortgage or your student loan or your car, depending upon if you live someplace where there is no public transportation. Right. And then when the value is low and it's something that you need, you proceed with caution. Okay. And I think that once you do those two things, right, first list out the kinds of debt that you have credit card, tax, student loan, mortgage, car, and then plot it in these different buckets. That will help you to then figure out, aha, maybe I need to focus on prioritizing those things that I've posted in the danger zone. Let me get the danger zone stuff out of the way first. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, go around the matrix. That's how I would approach it. Cool.
0: No, I haven't thought about it in that way, but that makes a lot of sense. I do think it's hard sometimes to wrap your heads around things. So I think that for people like me who are visual learners, (laughs) that's really helpful to see things written down. That's also why I make to-do lists. I just, I find it comforting to be able to look at something because I feel like I have a little bit of control over it once it's on paper.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think also though, the benefit of getting it out on paper is you get out of your head and -hmm. you can even, I think more easily see perhaps and draw connections and see patterns and see choices that you might not be able to tap into when you're carrying it all in your head, especially if you're carrying it all in your head and you have that negative self-talk about it happening as well.
0: Right. And speaking of negative self-talk, um, one of the things that has come up over and over in a in a post-pandemic world is this idea, this this stigma behind, you know, maybe things not being as good as they were before for you, and it's especially come up in, in small businesses. And uh, you and I. Chatted briefly before the program about this, but my first episode of the podcast that I did was an interview about PPP loans because that was a year ago, was when this was really in focus. And a year later, people are still talking about these, right? There's this notion that PPP loans, you know, people aren't getting them anymore because that it's already been taken care of, but now we're looking at at forgiveness. But it's been interesting to me to watch the evolution of discussions about PPP loans, because in the beginning, it was this, this is what we need to get through, right? Like people were thinking about it in a positive way. And then people sort of started talking about it in a negative way, because there was some fraud. And then we learned that there might be some, you know, millionaires or billionaires that also got loans, and people were talking about this in terms of whether it was fair or not. And you know, all of that kind of leads to this big question about the way that we talk about things that happen to us in finances. Like if you, if you fall behind in your business, does that make you a bad person? If you can't pay your taxes, are you really a scofflaw? Like it's this notion that when, when bad things happen, that you somehow maybe deserve it. It fascinates me because when we have these discussions about paying off debt, I think one of the things when people listen... I had some feedback actually after the, the PPP episode, they were like, thank you for talking about this because I can't talk about this with my, you know, my friends. I can't talk about this with my neighbors because I don't want them to think that I'm having a difficult time because I think that will change their perception of me. How do we encourage people to seek out help and to talk about money in a more healthy way in the face of all of this?
1: Well, of things, number one, I actually think we talk about money all the time. I just don't think we're having always the right conversations and you're hitting on some of the elements that I think are missing, such as talking about transparency, power and intimacy, all of which came about, I think, through watching the whole PPP process unfold. Mm -hmm. So my first thing that I would love to just remind people of is there are a lot of people on an individual and a business level that did all of the right things and yet still found themselves short as a result of the pandemic of everything. Right. And if they didn't feel it at first, you know, it revealed itself as time moved on. And here's what I want people to really embrace and understand, that hopefully we will never have the conflation of reckonings that we did like we had in 2020. Hopefully we won't have that anytime soon, but there will be another crisis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. And this is really all about, I think, how prepared or not were you for this crisis? How did you navigate? What did you learn? What were some of the things that were personal um, in terms of you know, personal choices, personal responsibility? And what were some that were systemic? And th- for those things that were systemic, make sure that you're putting it aside. And so you know, for those people that perhaps didn't feel Worthy of taking the PPP loan because they were like, or PPP loan because they were like, oh, I don't need it. And hopefully, they actually did take it. (laughs) Eventually, you know, remember that you've paid into it because the PPP loan money is coming from our tax dollars, so you have paid into it. So at least give yourself the credit for that. So I guess my point is, what am I trying to say as I dance around the barn? Is When you think about the the separation of personal and systemic, don't take on responsibility that's not yours. So when it comes to the worthiness piece, do whatever you need to do to to relinquish that and let that go, because you're not going to be able to address that through your personal choices, right? You can only do what's good for you and your business. And then I think it's important to find your tribe of people That you can have these conversations with, even if it's one-sided because you're listening to a podcast and not having the conversation with other folks at your kitchen table. You need to be in a position where there is someone or some group of people that you can talk about, here's what's happening, here's how I'm feeling, and either get some advice or just be heard. I think it's also important to talk about where you're feeling that in this moment whether it was that crisis or another crisis where are you feeling like your financial power is being challenged mm-hmm. or where might you be abdicating it <laughs> and you need to actually step more into it similarly where might you need to practice a little bit more intimacy and I let me just say here I think you can be transparent and not intimate But I don't think you can have financial intimacy without also transparency. And so the difference is in a transparency situation, having a conversation, whether it's about personal finances, business finances, or both, where you're talking about the challenge in general, but you're not talking about specific numbers. But when it comes to the intimacy piece, you're talking about the specific numbers. Do you have time for me to share an example of that? Oh my gosh, please do. Yeah, sure. So, it's a dated example, but I think it's it's instructive for us all. So, some time ago, Octavia Spencer was who speak- I love. Yeah, right? She was speaking at the Aspen Institute and she shared this story of she had dinner with Jessica Chastain. They were working on a movie. It was not the help. I do not know what the movie was though, but it was not the help. Okay. They were working on a movie and they had dinner just the two of them. And Octavia took that as an opportunity to share with Jessica how much she was getting paid. Mm -hmm. To Jessica's surprise, she was getting paid, I think, either three times or five times. I know it was an odd number, but she was either getting paid three times or five times more than Octavia was for the movie. Oh, wow. First of all, I think it took a lot of guts for Octavia to do that. That's a bit of transparency. Yes. Also because they talked about the details, that's a bit of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Well, to her credit, Jessica's credit, she went to that and she made sure that they then got paid on par. You know the factor, you know the X factor, but we don't know the numbers. The only people that know the exact numbers are Octavia, Jessica, their respective attorneys and agents and the studio. Mm -hmm. That to me is an example of the difference between transparency and intimacy and who knows what. Right. So what's interesting to
0: me when you are telling that story is you said, you know, it took a lot of guts for Octavia to say that, but how do you find that within yourself? Because I know that we've had, I mean, we've had discussions on the program and also in some of my circles when it comes to like women in the law and women in tax and Um, I've shared before that my husband and I, when we were in law school, we weren't dating at the time, but we were friends. And I found out he was offered a dollar more an hour for a research position that we both applied to, even though I was more experienced than he was. So, but you know, but most people don't have those conversations because it's weird, right? Because I think it goes back to this notion that you were talking about, about worthiness. Like. Maybe you find out that you're not worth as much to people as you thought you were. Cause I have to think if you find out that if you're sitting across the table from somebody and you're doing the same job and they tell you that they're getting paid three times more than you, there's gotta be a lot that goes through your head. And one of them must be like, what am I doing wrong? Right. I mean, even if you can point to factors, even if you can say that it's it's races involved or it's years in the industry involved or whatever, like even if you can point to those things, it has to be because I I know that in this situation. I hundred percent believe it was based on the fact that I was younger, and even though we were in the same level, um, I was younger and I was female. I think that's why I was offered less. But it still made me think, what could I have done to be given the extra dollar an hour? Like, I think it's a hard conversation.
1: It is a hard conversation, but I think that's something that we have to kind of embrace. We as a culture, we want these kinds of conversations to be easy and they can't always be. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is changing our expectation from wanting these kinds of conversations to be easeful. Sure. And really, you know, leaning into the difficulty of it, because when you get through on the other side of it, it's, it's typically a really good thing, even if you don't get the outcome or the result that you want. Mm-hmm. We, with the example that you just shared, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with regards to the difference between personal and systemic. The personal piece is someone saying it's this way because I did or did not do something when there's probably a systemic factor going on there as well. And I will say that although, yes, I did say it was brave of Octavia, and I still agree with that, she probably knew before she even started the conversation that she was being paid significantly less. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I I don't think she was surprised by it. She may have been surprised by the X factor, but I don't think she was surprised by it at all. So in
0: these conversations, like when you think you're missing out, whether it's opportunity to be paid more or maybe you need to figure out how to start a retirement account or how to pay down your debt, like, do you have some tips for listeners in terms of like, and again, I understand that people are in different circumstances, but like, just generally, how do you start becoming more transparent and intimate about these things? Like, do you? I know you said be in a space where you can either have a conversation or listen to things. I think that's really uh, important because I, I know that I have some friends in the in the financial world that when they speak, they just make me feel better <laughs> about things. Do you have some tips for listeners in terms of just? And, and it could be baby steps, like we were talking about, like starting small, like how can you get yourself to a place where you feel better having these conversations? And it doesn't have to be, you know, with your coworker, how much do you make type of thing, but do you tell people they should review their statements once a month and kind of figure out where they are personally? Like what kinds of tips do you have for feeling better about having conversations around money?
1: One of the very first things is let go of the expectation that you need to know everything about everything. Okay. I live in this world, right? So for me, I love talking about money. I love talking about people's behavior with it and understanding what makes them tick and why and all of that. And I recognize that not everybody shares that same enthusiasm as I do. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, you don't have to know everything. So let go of the pressure that may say, I'm highly educated or I'm a high earner. So of course I know and should know what to do with my money. Like, let it be okay that you have questions. Let it be okay that you might be afraid of doing something. So I think the first thing is to give yourself permission to be human about something that's not perhaps in your wheelhouse. So that's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is to get clear on, well, what are your questions? (laughs) And why does that question, you know, what makes that question, I think is a better way of phrasing it, what makes that question important to you? So, those are just, you know, perhaps some just philosophical and mindset things to embrace. On a more tactical level, I think going through your banking statements, going through your credit card statements, and even just doing an exercise where, yes, I'm asking you to print it out and there's a reason going through an exercise where you print out your statements and you have three different color highlighters. One is to highlight those purchases that made you happy. Another is to highlight those purchases that are just mandatory. They just have to be done like your mortgage or your car payment. Mm -hmm. And then the other is to represent those purchases that made you happy when you initially purchased it but now 30 or 60 days later that you're reviewing your statements you're like, "Uh, eh, I could have done without that." And then tally up, if you know, if you've got yellow for happy, how many yellows do you have? If you've got red for mandatory, how many reds do you have? If you've got blue for regret, how many blues do you have? That alone will give you a lot of insight as to what changes you might want to make and what questions you might want to ask either of yourself of your Family, you know, your partner, Mm -hmm. children, whomever, parents, and of any professionals with whom you're working. So, we've talked about this a
0: lot on the program. People often want one person to kind of help them figure out everything. And I'm a big advocate for having a team. Do you have, like, if you could list two or three people that you think people should surround themselves with? Like, I always say, like, tax attorney, accountant, you know, that kind of thing. Do you have? Like recommendations for fiduciaries or trusted advisors that you think people should have access to, even if it's on a not necessarily a regular basis, but on a as needed basis.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna ditto you on that. I think everybody should have a CPA for sure. And even better if that CPA has an MST. <laughs> I also think that, you know, depending upon their circumstances, they may not need a family attorney, but they should have access to an attorney. And then again, it depends upon their situation, but the, they should either have a financial professional that is a fiduciary and, and is managing their money, or they can even have someone that works in the capacity like I do, that's more on the behavioral and the coaching side, and, and we're not doing any you know, investment or insurance products and, and implementation for them. But I wholeheartedly believe in having a team approach, mm-hmm. and I also wholeheartedly believe that while you hire this team and you are outsourcing and tapping into their expertise that you never forget that at the end of the day, it's your money. So you cannot abdicate your role and you cannot abdicate the need for you to be actively engaged. You might not be, you know, as engaged as perhaps you and I would be. But you need to be engaged. Like you just can't say, okay, I've hired this person. Let me just walk away. Oh my gosh. If I could put that like
0: on a t shirt while you just said I would,
1: because one
0: of the things that I see most often, whether it is in a marriage or in a business or just generally with my taxpayers, I see a lot of people who rely on someone else, not always a professional, but someone else to take care of things. And then they don't know the state of their own finances. So I have had spouses that come to me after the fact and say, my husband hasn't filed tax returns for five years. I had no idea. Or I've had business owners that said my CPA wasn't remitting payroll taxes and we thought it was happening, you know, that kind of thing. So taking responsibility for your money, I think is just so important, especially, you know, not especially, but even when you have other people that are helping. Because I, I do think that sometimes it becomes really easy to look away, especially if you're busy and and you think that your spouse or your parent or someone else is taking care of things.
1: Totally. And that leaves you vulnerable, which is the exact opposite of where you want to be, right? So it's interesting in that regard. Actually, one of the things you said, and I, I think this is actually a really good way to
0: wrap, is that one of the things that you were talking about when we were talking about teams is that, You're not selling insurance or that kind of thing. I think a lot of folks who are looking at coaches or financial advisors, or they're not always sure what it is that they do. So, can you give us like the Reader's Digest version of what you do and why it's important and why people might need somebody like you?
1: Yeah. And, you know, as much as I love my industry, I will say that I dislike that aspect of it. The fact that there are so many titles for the different things that people do, it makes it confusing for the consumer. So I would park it like this. So, just like you drew the matrix, the debt matrix with the rectangles and all of that, the quadrants, I would make a list and the list would be Do I need someone to help me with investing? And if you do, you've got several options there. You've got a certified financial planner who not only puts together a plan, but does the execution. You have a financial advisor. You've got a broker, a stockbroker. So those are you know, the people that can help you with the investment of your assets.
0: Mm-hmm. Then you've
1: got the insurance, right? And sometimes that CFP and sometimes that financial advisor can also help you with insurance, whether that is life insurance, disability insurance, business insurance, And then you've got your tax professional. I'm always going to advocate for a CPA and also advocate for one that has an MST. But sometimes people find success working with an accountant that's not a CPA. So that's how I would look at it as what aspect of your money do you need the most hands-on help with? Is it the asset management side? Then again, you're looking at a CFP, a financial advisor, or a stockbroker. If it's the insurance side, one of those, or maybe even just an insurance broker, or is it taxes? And then if you're looking at, you know, who can come in and help me with my relationship with money and help me with improving the choices that I make and the, and the, and the behaviors that I practice and the habits that I practice and who can help me with perhaps identifying or, you know... What are the best things to do in terms of interviewing these other financial professionals? Well, then that's when a financial behaviorist like myself or a financial coach can come into play. The one thing that I will say is that while the financial coaching part of the industry is definitely not as regulated as the investment management part and the insurance part and the CPA part, Mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you are engaging someone who has some experience, right? If it's education, you know, have an MBA in finance or a master's in economics or something along those lines, or at least having had, you know, having worked in that industry. So I managed money in the private bank for darn near 10 years. So you want to make sure that you're working with someone that has some experience. I don't want to be disrespectful, but I think you want to be really careful about those scenarios where Someone was deeply into debt, they got out of it, and they're sharing with you their way of getting out of debt. If mm-hmm. that's all you need, perhaps that would be sufficient. But if you start delving into other areas, that might be a little riskier, I think. Right. So you want to make sure that you're working with someone that's credentialed from an experiential standpoint and as well from an educational standpoint.
0: Oh, I agree completely. I think I don't like getting caught up in titles because, as you mentioned, there are a lot of initials that can follow people's names these days especially in the the money and finance arena um, but I do think it matters uh what their experience is and who who they've worked with because I also think that makes a difference I I, I think that you know as you mentioned people who um you know there's always somebody who s- tells you how they they got out of debt really quickly and they forget to mention that part of that was because their you know parents were paying their rent for a really long time I think that those facts and circumstances matter. So I think it's really great to have those conversations to figure out, you know, you interview people just the way you would anything, in, any other professional when, um, when we engage anybody in the, on the tax attorney side, like we have meetings and we chat and we want to make sure that you like us and we like you, because we're going to talk about a lot of sometimes really personal stuff. Like you owe a lot of money or how can we get out of uh, debt? You know, that kind of stuff. So
1: absolutely. Thank you. I always say that when you're interviewing people, you are assessing their business acumen and then also compatibility. And so you also want to know how do they work with people, not just who they've worked with, but how, because you want to make sure that that is in sync with how you want to be worked with.
0: Oh, absolutely. I agree. Well, thanks so much. I think that this has been really helpful. I think there are a lot of great tips for folks to figure out how to make some of these decisions. I love your slogan, this idea that you don't really manage money, you manage choices. Um, And I think that's a, a really great lesson. If people learn nothing else today, I hope they remember that. If you wanted to be found, if people wanted to find you on social media or on the web and you wanted to be found, where would you send them?
1: Oh my goodness, on social media, definitely find me on Instagram. I love me some Instagram. (laughs) And I still like social media. I know some people are like over it, but I still like it. Me too. On my website, if you go to JaquetteTimmons.com forward slash wheel, you can get a free exercise called the financial wheel. And the whole purpose of the exercise is to help you either connect to or reconnect with your financial vision and what it is that you want money to do for you in your personal life. And if you have a business, how do you then need to ensure that your business is designed to help you fulfill that financial vision that you have on the personal side? So it's a a combination of helping you, of course, look at the math and, and the mechanics of money, but also tap into the psychology and the emotions of it by, you know, declaring what it is you want money to do for you.
0: Perfect. And I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes for folks so you can just click through.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. I really appreciated our conversation. Oh, me too. It was great. Thanks. I'd
0: love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.